Gee, Kamala, I guess I'm the president now. That's exciting. I've never felt so energized. Gosh, has Donald called me yet? No. Well, I guess he must be pretty busy these days. Oh, is that a squirrel? They're funny little creatures. Hmm. Wheel of Fortune's on, and that means it's nearly my bedtime. You know what they say, early to bed. I don't remember the rest. I guess I better go. Good to meet you, folks. Welcome back to the Castles Podcast, now brought to you through Podbean and available on your smart devices. Just ask for Bisque Podcast. Today, there will be an extended interview with PhD researcher Erica Campbell, a former Bisque student. But it's been a tumultuous few weeks, so let's get started with first the news. A man moved house, a woman got a job, and someone played golf. Of course, there is only one story dominating the news this week, and that is that America has a new president. Joseph R. Biden, longtime senator and former vice president of the United States of America, has become the 46th president. There has been some debate to the legitimacy of his presidency, but almost all investigations into the allegations of the compromised security of the American democratic system have been proven false or so minimal as to have no tangible result on the outcome of the election. But this sets the tone for a new page in America's political and global positions. Biden, within four hours of taking the reins, has already rolled back several of Donald Trump's most controversial policies, including returning America to the Paris Agreement on climate change, returning America's participation in the World Health Organization, and implementing a federal mask law on federal buildings and places of employment. This doesn't really come as a surprise. Biden is arguably the most qualified and experienced person to ever take the role, having been a senator for more than 40 years, as well as having held the second top job for eight years. There aren't many people in America who would be better served to quickly and confidently take to the role. Add to his position the indomitable Kamala Harris as vice president, and regardless of your politics, it can at least be agreed these two know how the processes of the American political system operate. For better or worse, this is a team that will accomplish much. Indeed, in day one, Biden has already changed history in his selection for vice president, Kamala Harris. So in today's second story, Kamala Harris has made history this week in three ways. Kamala Harris this week made history in being the first woman appointed to the role of Vice President of America. Kamala Harris this week made history in being the first African American appointed to the role of Vice President of the United States of America. Kamala Harris this week made history in being the first Asian American to be appointed to the role of Vice President of America. It cannot be understated how significant an act this is. Harris, a successful senator in her own right, surely has ushered in a new era of American politics as symbolized and captured by American Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman's The Hill We Climb, which caught and galvanized the mood of reconciliation of the day. And finally, Donald Trump has moved to his Florida home, Mar-a-Lago. Despite the legal restrictions that prevent anyone from taking permanent residence at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump has never let laws politics, or decency prevent him from doing what he wants. 
2021 has already seen him lose his job. Perhaps he'll soon find himself homeless, too. And that's all for the news. Things coming up. On Friday of last week, guest speaker Jacob Bloomfeld had the first of his two talks. His second, on a history of drag culture, will be on Saturday, February the 13th. On Wednesday, January 27th, it is Holocaust Memorial Day. Look out for what the castle will be doing to mark that important occasion. And we have another guest speaker coming. On February 3rd, there is a conversation with Dr. Cheryl Thompson. Dr. Thompson, assistant professor of Ryerson University, joins us for a Q&A about her work, including her forthcoming book, Uncle, Race, Nostalgia, and the Politics of Loyalty. In further news, Midori Komachi is organizing an intercultural radio project. If you're interested in world music and cultures, contact Midori and get involved. You can find details of this project on the BISC Thrive website, and you can earn BSA points with that project. Castle Reads is continuing, and we've begun reading Island of the Sea Woman by Lisa C., Contact me if you're interested in joining Castle Reads. For our next feature, it's Robbie Burns Day today. January 25th of every year, there is a celebration of Scottish culture, food and drink, as well as the poetry of Robbie Burns. Traditionally, haggis would be served with potatoes, turnips and a whiskey sauce. The haggis, a rich mixture of ground meat and oats cooked in a sheep's stomach, is a lovely dish which must be tried at least once consider giving it a try today. And on this day, there is always a special address, an ode, as you will, to a haggis. So here is my rendition of Robbie Burns' poem, Address to a Haggis. Fair far your honest sonsy face, great chieftain of the puddin' race, upon them all you'll take your place, pinch, tripe, or therm. Weel, are ye worthy of a grace, as long's me arm. The groaning trencher there ye fill, your hurdies like a distant hill, your pin would help to mend a mill in time of need, while through your pores the dews distill like amber bead. His knife, see rustic labour dight, and cut you up with ready sight, Trenching your gushing entrails brights like ony ditch. And then, oh, what a glorious sight, warm, reeking, rich. Then, horn for horn, they stretch and strive, deal take the hindmost on they drive, till all their wheel-swelled kites belive are bent like drums. The old gidman might like to rive, be thank it. Hums. Is there that o'er is French ragout, or olio that would saw a stew, or fricassee would make her spew, with perfect scunner, looks down with sneering, scornful view on such a dinner? Poor Dale. Seymour is trash, as feckless as a withered rash, is spindle shank a good whiplash, is neither knit through bloody flood, or field to dash. Oh, how unfit! But mark the rustic haggis fed, the trembling earth resounds his tread, clap in his wally neva blade, he'll muck it whistle, and legs and arms and heads will sned like taps a thistle. Ye powers will muck mankind your care, and dish them out their bill of fare, 
Old Scotland wants nae skinking ware that jowps and luggies, but if ye wish her grateful prayer, gie her a haggis. To finish, I spent an afternoon talking with a former BISC student, Erica Campbell, who is now working on her PhD. We zoomed to chat about her research work. I'm here with former BISC student Erica Campbell. She studied at the BISC in 2015, and she is now working on her PhD. So I'm going to allow her to introduce herself, and then I'm going to ask her a few questions about her research work. Hi, everyone. My name is Erica Campbell. I... Uh, completed my undergraduate degree at Queen's in 2019, did my master's also at Queen's in gender studies and completed that in 2020. And now I am a first year PhD student at McMaster in global health. My research project is focused on establishing an anti-oppressive praxis for the Ontario health system to guide maternity care providers and how they provide care to Indigenous clients who are coming in for perhaps pregnancy care, postpartum care, abortion care, miscarriage care, anything really surrounding the act of gestation. And so my research will be using participatory action-based methods, which is a type of methodology that onboards research participants to not only work and and be interviewed and to be a part of you know collecting data but also to be researchers themselves so they will work to analyze the data they will work to establish the research questions and the aims of the research and so we're in the beginning process of doing that right now so we don't have a research questions and we haven't begun collecting data but we're establishing our community relations between the research team that has been developed at McMaster and the site that this research will take place so in terms of a method you'll be using interviews and creating a network of interviewers yes our method is to interview healthcare providers policymakers and administrators as well as indigenous peoples who have received care at our particular um, site that we are basing all of our research off of and based on these interviews we'll also be collecting documentary data So then we will process all of the various data that we have through a thematic analysis, which pulls out different themes that are repeated and highly saturated within what policies, uh, documents are stating, as well as what interviewees have stated. And this process of creating these themes will not only be done by myself as a researcher, as a research PhD student and my supervisors, but also by a couple of the research participants. So it really helps create um, research that is meant for the community, the community here being, of course, Indigenous peoples um, living within the Toronto area, as that's where we're basing our, our study out of but also intended to disseminate knowledge in a way that is acceptable and based on the terms of these individuals who are not only acting as uh, participants in the study, but also researchers. And so then what is the aim of the research projects? What is the intended outcome? So the intended outcome is to establish a list of recommendations of how uh, healthcare providers, policymakers, and administrators can implement anti-oppressive practices. So how they can combat racism and colonization and cis-sexism and other forms of oppression that exist within our health system that particularly affect the ways in which Indigenous peoples receive care during pregnancy and uh, other obstetrical services 
to limit these um, colonial-based oppressions and really introduce ways of being anti-oppressive and being decolonial in the way that we provide care. So providing care in ways that are acceptable to Indigenous peoples that create safe spaces to receive care and, and hold physicians and other healthcare professionals accountable for their actions within the system. And can you give an example of how Indigenous practices uh, may be either overlooked in medical practices or could contribute to a better understanding of medical practices that are catering to Indigenous populations? For sure. So Indigenous peoples have been forced to ascribe to what I like to call the Euro-Canadian biomedical model for obstetrical care. So they've been forced to engage with systems that were historically built um, by European peoples, typically to harm them and to assimilate them into this white settler society here in Canada. And this was done as a result of the Indian Act of 1876, as well as its amendments. So during this time, um, Indigenous midwifery was criminalized. Uh, There was the establishment of Indian hospitals here in Canada. There was mandatory evacuations for Indigenous peoples who were pregnant to deliver in Southern um, settler-run institutions. There was also this ongoing that continues today forced and coercive practice of sterilizing Indigenous peoples. And this really set a benchmark for obstetrical services here that is provided within the very variety of Canadian health systems. So our work is really to try to combat that here in Ontario within the Ontario health system in the ways in which maternity care is being provided for. So by implementing anti-oppressive practices, we hope that we can dismantle this long history of sterilization, the history of evacuation births, and really, you know, promote and have white and, and non-Indigenous healthcare providers promoting bringing birth back to the community and finding ways to really ensure that Indigenous resistance to these colonial um, projects is celebrated within the health system by ensuring that no longer will colonialism exist within our healthcare practices. And in an earlier conversation, you had mentioned sage and smudging. Could you explain those two terms? So sage is um, a medicinal plant that has various cultural meanings that as a white settler, I am not incredibly familiar with and so learning. But there's various plants like tobacco and sweet grass that are also used and they can be smudged and burned. And it's a cleansing process that can happen and very important within several, you know, First Nations, Métis and um, some other Inuit communities. I think predominantly in my experience, I've worked quite a bit with Mohawk communities and have seen this practice take place. And I think um, currently right now in healthcare facilities, Sometimes policies are put in place that would prevent, you know, this type of practice from happening. And this can be quite harmful because it is saying that Indigenous medicines don't have a place within our system, a system that has been built on stolen land and a system that has been built to assimilate and marginalize and racialize Indigenous peoples. So it's quite problematic to have these policies in place. And it's about finding ways in which that we can dismantle these policies and carve out space for indigenous meanings of health and knowledges around health. So that might include, you know, sage and and including smudging within, um, you know, a maternity ward at a hospital to allow for 
a level of, of acceptability and accessibility of care that both encompasses sort of this Euro-Canadian biomedical model, but also includes Indigenous healthcare. And by allowing them both to coexist, I think that promises a, a collective future for all of us in engaging in decolonizing acts within our healthcare system. All too often, um, the Eurobiomedical model has silenced uh, Indigenous ways of doing and knowing of health. And this is uh, a terrible act that continues to take place. And I really emphasize that this is an ongoing process. And we really need, as health scholars, as um, healthcare professionals or policymakers, to really scrutinize why this is happening within our settler run and typically established healthcare systems, why the Euro-Canadian biomedical model continues to perpetuate such racialization and really combat that. And I think that that is you know, the goal. I think if we can start having indigenous practices of health within our health system without them being you know, lessened or violated or um, racialized, I think that that's really the goal. And who knows, we'll see where it goes, but there are several different infrastructures and institutions that are doing that right now. So it tells me that everyone, all healthcare practitioners and all hospitals could be implementing this within their own right. However, some are choosing not to. And I think we need to make it no longer a choice and make it a requirement that indigenous healthcare knowledges our practice and a part of our healthcare system here in Canada. Well, Erica, I remember when you were in your first year, one of the things that really marked you was your commitment to advocacy and allyship right from the very beginning of your university study. And I'm so pleased to see how this has become such a major part of who you are and your academic world. Well, thank you, Rob. It was a pleasure to be a student at the BISC. I truly learned so much while I was there. And I think I learned a lot from a lot of the peers that made the choice to go to the castle the same year I did. And was really grateful for the learning opportunities I received while I was there. And the connections that I made that I was able to bring back with me to Canada, that was a really special component. Well, thank you so much for your time with talking to me today. Next week... I'll be talking with former BISC student Roy Jang. But until then, goodbye.